All right. Good morning, everyone. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of First Kings. We had just gotten into chapter 7 last week. And of course, what's going on is Solomon is finally getting to construct the temple. So we took a look at that. Of course, it's of great historical significance and of some interest just in its own right. But as we look at the temple, we're dwelling on the concept of uh, God dwelling with man. And so we tapped in last week to this huge overarching biblical theme, um, the dwelling place of God with man, and how our lives very concretely are, are led to the sacraments of the church wherein we participate in the temple that is Christ, his body and blood through Holy Communion. And that is a foretaste of where we are all heading, indeed where the entire cosmos is heading um, as we go toward the new heavens and the new earth, the concrete and absolute realities of the resurrection of our bodies and our dwelling with God in blessedness forever, um, that of which Revelation speaks in its final and closing chapters. So as we study the temple, we are in many ways studying Christ and simultaneously uh, studying um, the fulfillment of all things, which is Christ all in all, in all and uh, we being participants in that, not, no longer by faith, but by sight. The temple is ornate. It involves three-dimensional carvings, not least of which are the two cherubim. I think their wingspans, if I recall, are about was it 10 feet across? No, it would be cubits, so 15 feet across each. Um, so very large statues in the holiest of holies, and that's where the ark is going to dwell. We spent some time in the Lutheran Study Bible on page 541 just looking at that picture, looking at that temple of the, the holiest of holies, where the ark is, and then outside of that, the holy place, and then outside of that, you have the, uh, the portico and the surrounding storage rooms where the treasuries are they, and, and the treasures are kept. Um, you have this mention of three stories, so it's, you get a sense for its height, and indeed it figures beyond those three stories as well by a bit more. So we gain the general contours of the, uh, of the temple, and... We reflect on its meaning, too, in some of the architecture and the decorations. You see this theme of uh, the wedding of heaven and earth, heavenly beings and earthly beings. Then in chapter 7, Solomon builds his palace. And as the author has been doing heretofore, there are, there are hints that everything might not be right. And... One of those hints, you know, there's just enough ambiguity there that you can't say with absolute certainty, but you can kind of read into it that while God's house takes Solomon seven years to construct, his own house takes 13 years. 
and as it turns out, his house is uh, larger, larger. So, at least I think that's the case. Yeah, yeah. The study note at the end of, uh, well, the study note for the whole of chapter 6. Specific dates, 480 years after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Okay, the temple is built. Uh, the measurements, 60 cubits long, and descriptions, cherubim of Olawood lend gravity to the description of the seven years it takes to build the, the temple. And then over in, in the study note of chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, Solomon's house takes almost twice as long to build. An ominous foreshadowing of Solomon's shifting priorities. Okay. Oh, yes, and that's where we get. He built in verse 2. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50, 50 cubits, and height 30 cubits. So those dimensions are larger than than the temple of God. Ominous foreshadowing indeed. I think we made it through verse 12, did we not? No? Just starting verse? Okay, just starting chapter 7. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon, its length was a hundred cubits, and its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits, and it was built on four rows of cedar pillars, with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the forty-five pillars, fifteen in each row. There were window frames in the three rows, and window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Just checking the notes here. Yeah, so, so in regard to that title, House of the Forest of Lebanon, and then what we're going to see is the hull of pillars and the hull of the throne. So individual structures in the royal building complex were named in part according to their basic features and in part according to their purpose. So this was, yeah, in regard to the language of the forest of Lebanon, this was 60 feet longer and 45 feet wider than the temple. It required so much cedar wood for its construction as to make it a veritable forest. And we learn later that it served as an armory. Okay, well, I don't think that they, I don't think that the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible made us a picture of this, which is unfortunate because we'd like to know. And yet, what are they trying to say? It's not really important. <laughs> it took 13 years. Is that why it's a bad number, 13? 13? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's where the unlucky number comes from or not. I, I kind of doubt it, but who knows. All right, well, verse 6, And he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its breadth 30 cubits. Remember, a cubit's a 
foot and a half, 18 inches. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor uh, to rafters. I must have smelled amazing. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. And I think here you sort of get the sense that there's his personal quarters and then there's the, uh, sort of like, maybe more like what the White House used to be, you know, a place that you could actually go into and conduct the business of the country, that kind of thing. Yeah, his own house, verse 8, where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coping and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. You know, and again, that may be that may be giving all of these measurements and uh, here a comparison to the house of the Lord. It may in fact be the subtle way in which the narrator is trying to communicate, you know, by way of foreshadowing and whatnot. Um, that, that even from the very beginning, Solomon was kind of caring more for himself than, than for the Lord, which would, which would be a step backwards towards Saul, unfortunately. Yeah, we don't see that he, he covered everything in gold, at least not explicitly here. So that's, that is a difference. That is a difference. All right, verse 13. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar. And a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of the one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows, around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar, and he did the same with the other capital. 
Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work, four cubits. And yeah, you can see that lily work is shaped like lilies. So, I mean, what, what do we take away from this? Very, very ornately designed. Yeah, very beautiful. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice work. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around, and so with the other capital. He set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name uh, Jachin or Yakin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And if you look down at the study note, this is a little fascinating detail. Um, the name of the first pillar is a verb meaning he, that is God, will establish. Boaz is a prepositional phrase plus a noun. In him is strength, or more woodenly, in him strength. It is also possible that both names were read as one sentence. He will establish and strength. So the entrance to the holy place was oriented, that is, uh, it faced east toward the sunrise, as had the tabernacle. Sunrise and sunset determined the beginning and the ending of the Sabbath and the hours of the sacrifice. All right. So once again, you see this connection with creation and the temple. It's oriented toward the east where you have the rising of the sun. And, um, yeah, I mean, we did a lot of this with the tabernacle already and the parallels, the parallels to um, Christianity. Even our sanctuaries, when they aren't built in, you know, true to the, to the northeast, you know, directionality, we um, have a liturgical east, and that's, that's always facing uh, the front, of the sanctuary. So in our, in our sanctuary where the altar is, if you're facing that, where the crucifix is, if you're facing that, you're facing liturgical east. And we call it that based on this principle and based largely on the early church hope that when Christ returns, he will return in the east. As the sun rises in the east, Christ is our sun and he rises and uh, will return. So you can see some of that foreshadowed in this orienting of the temple, just as the tabernacle itself was oriented. I don't know. I don't think we need to spend too much more time on that, but it is an interesting fact. Um, over on the uh, page 544 in your Lutheran Study Bible, again, if you don't have one, you should get one. And, uh, and here they've just, you know, this is interesting because it, it kind of depicts what they think the art may have been like based on other art of the same time, although not from this temple itself. Uh, so you can, see, you can see the question, did Solomon's temple look like this? This art only depicts how Solomon's artists might have expressed themselves within their vision and times. The temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians, and not one decorative stone has been found. Yet the word pictures of Scripture cannot be rejected. Though inadequate to the task, this selection of artifacts 
from Solomon's time period provided the artist with, at best, acceptable illustration copy. For example, a small carved ivory from Arslan Tash, Syria, became the model for the large cherubim that guarded the ark. Costume decor was followed in detail, but the wings were changed, rolling forward and outward to match the sculptured cherubim of the most holy place, described in Second Chronicles 3.10. Okay, so again, what are they referring to? Well, if you look at, if you look at figure F, that's the winged guardian from Arslan Tash. And then if you flip back to uh, the drawing on page 541, you can see that that's how they've artistically based, with some modification, um, the cherubim uh, guarding the ark in the holiest of holies. By the way, while you're there, you can also see the two pillars that we were just talking about with the capitals and all the fancy work. Um, you can see those pillars to the right-hand side of the diagram, and you can see the labeling pillars cast in bronze named Jachin or Yakin and Boaz. So those two pillars through which you enter. I mean, incredible, incredible place. So back to these, back to these figures, and maybe that's the... Uh, Maybe that's the final point to make before I just commend this to you um, based on your own interest. But you can see some of the different diagramming of the temples that have been found. And you can see also at the very bottom the layout of the temples and how similar Solomon's temple is to these, its description. You know, I suppose one point of bringing all of this up is simply that... Um, this description fits the description of similar places of worship of that time period. So even if we don't have uh, physical remnants of the temple yet, the description fits That's that which we do from the same time period. So it's bolstered and, and by that. I guess if someone would doubt that this, <laughs> that this temple was real. But if you're at that level of skepticism, you've got a lot of other problems. <laughs> so, and then someone would sit down and just fabricate this. I don't know, I don't know why on earth they would. Yeah, and then, yeah, there's this great note under the, under the heading gold on the left-hand column there on page 544, gold, overlaid the floor and the beams, threshold, walls, and doors. This sounds extravagant, yet not within its time. Inscriptions of Assyrian kings exclaim, I covered the walls of my temple so it shone like the sun. Another king claims to have applied gold like plaster, slapping it on. <laughs> in recent times, sheets of gold were discovered all over large objects in the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Solomon had trade monopolies and also may have benefited from a gold rush, a quote-unquote gold rush, lavish gold for the house of God. It was the ancient norm. And then you can see, too, how this is elevated symbolically in the language of Revelation, where in Revelation the streets are paved with gold. You know. In one sense, it's still there, it's still prevalent, it's still honored. In another sense, that which once had the highest honor is now, yeah, under the feet of the saints. And... Okay. 
Well, that's all the work I want to do there. I just wanted to point out those things to you. They're fascinating in their own right, even though they're a bit of a diversion. Yes. Oh, I see. Yeah, so, so the question is, um, for those of you listening on the Internet, you know, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple, they may have carted some off or used some for other purposes in the area. It yeah, it was customary. And, of course, there's a plundering of the house and a taking of the treasures up to Babylon. So, um, yeah, I think, I think the point is that they've just not found anything that they can specifically say this comes from the temple. We know it for a fact. I mean, is it possible that they have indeed found artifacts that they just can't definitively link to that temple? Possibly. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit out of my element in terms of those archaeological specificities. But I see uh, uh, Dr. Park has his hand up. Please. Um, so the, the legend is that the Ark of the Covenant uh, was shipped into Ethiopia. Ah. Okay, so the legend is that the Ark of the Covenant was shipped to Ethiopia. Yeah, and it's in the, apparently it's in a monastery. And that's in a monastery there. Is that where the Nazis found it for Indiana Jones? <laughs> Now it's in a warehouse in Germany, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, professor that was at, at Concordia Irvine, uh-huh. uh, he's from Ethiopia. Oh, really? He said, yeah. So a professor who's there at Irvine from Ethiopia. Yeah, and, uh, and uh-huh. He passed away. And he said, yeah, yeah. They suspect it's there. Yeah. Wow. How interesting. How interesting. Don't look inside of it. Turn into a melting candle. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, okay. Let's let's mosey on to verse twenty-three, and we're going to continue with the various descriptions of the temple furnishings. In fact, we're going to, going to get into some descriptions, which, as detailed as they are, we still can't figure out what's going on exactly. We can't figure out exactly what they might describe. Uh, wonderful, elaborate, state of the art for the times. I mean, what in our culture comes even close to this? Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, Disneyland. Maybe to some extent our Capitol buildings, but even then, I don't know. I don't know. This is quite elaborate. So, verse 23, Then he made the sea of cast metal. Yeah, it's so big it's called the sea. It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim. Remember, a cubit is 18 inches, so 15 feet, brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. Under its brim were gourds for 10 cubits, compassing the sea all around. The gourds were in two rows, cast with it when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three facing north and three facing west, three facing south and three facing east. The sea was set on them, and all their rear parts were inward. Its thickness was a handbreadth, and its 
brim was made like the brim of a cup, like the flower of a lily. It held 2,000 baths, which the study note indicates is 12,000 gallons. What's a gallon of, of water weigh? Something like 8.8 .8 pounds or something? Yeah. So you can do the math there. You can do the math on how much this thing weighed, how substantial it was. You can imagine how beautiful it is. And, I mean, it's placed on the back of these 12 oxen. It's just incredible. Just incredible. The, um, the description of the 12 oxen is interestingly reminiscent to the description of the New Jerusalem with four sides and three gates on each side, and that being representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And here, you know, in a microcosm, and albeit just holding up this, uh, this sea of cast metal, um, you have these oxen, three pointed in each of the four directions for a 12 total. And huh, yeah, well, we'll get there in a minute. Maybe, maybe just to read one more line from verse 27, he also made the 10 stands of bronze. Each stand was four cubits long, four cubits wide, and three cubits high. Now, in regard to this, the study note says, um, more complicated in design than the stationary sea were the ten movable basins or lavers in which the water was wheeled in order to make it available to, quote, rinse off what was used for the burnt offering, a reference to Second Chronicles 4.6. Though the description is surprisingly detailed, it is difficult to reconstruct an exact model. The author demonstrates a personal fascination with these mechanisms. All right, so this is some state-of-the-art technology, but again, the water there, according to Second Chronicles, was used to rinse what was used for the burnt offering. There has to be some way to get this water in a usable format that's what these stands, basins, lavers, etc., are describing. We just don't know really how this worked. Yes? Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to go looking to see for an explicit verse to see whether, you know, whether there's an explicit reference that says God told. Uh, yeah, to him to, told Solomon to build in this way. I think, I think either one or two things. Either yes, he did, whether that's recorded or not, or, uh, or, temple, or, or he just simply understood what it was to be based on the tabernacle. Or we're going to make the tabernacle as glorious as we can type of thing, you know. Um, but even then, that, that would strike me as strange. That would strike me as strange. I'd, I would go looking for an explicit verse thinking there probably is one somewhere. And if not, I think that that would just be the assumption. Okay, well, and this, the, you know, this sea is interesting, too, because in Revelation, well, it's, it's the book of Hebrews that tells us that these things below are a copy of those things that are above. And then in Revelation, what do we find? We find the great glassy sea, right, like casting down their golden crowns, 
around the glassy sea, and the glassy sea in the midst of the glassy sea is the, is the throne of God. And so, you know, you have to use your spatial imagination a little bit, but this represents the glassy sea, and um, behind that, as it were, if you were facing the temple, behind that, as it were, would be the throne of God, um, the mercy seat in the holiest of holies. Okay, so where we left off was verse 28. In the midst of this section, that really, uh, I mean, neither the editors, and then certainly not me, uh, we're not going to be able to make this uh, clear as to what exactly is going on. Verse 28, this was the construction of the stands. They had panels, and the panels were set in the frames, and on the panels that were set in the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. Now, it's very interesting because this, you have this kind of recurrent imagery, lions, oxen, and cherubim. When you look at, when you look at some of the descriptions of cherubim, the four living creatures, you know, are the face of a lion, the face of a man, it's, um, the face of an ox. Out. Oh. Is it me? Is it anything I did? No, it's me. Good. It would be very much like me to just, you know, casually hit the mute button. <laughs> or get befuddled as to which is the mute and not, like I always do in divine service. Ah. <laughs> Easy to do. Easy to do. Okay, so should I just hang out? No, no, you can continue on. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. Just make sure I didn't mute it during all that. All right. So where were we? Let's see. Oh, yeah, talking about lions, oxen, and cherubim. Again, there's no real, like, one-to-one, -one, really tight, really neat lining up of all of these things. It's just, it's just that these images recur in the description of cherubims, in the description of heavenly realities. And I was describing the, the four living creatures that, you know, have the face of, let's see if I can get it, uh, a, a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a man, okay, in Revelation. They're a little different in Ezekiel. They're a little bit modified. But even here, you've, you've got some repetition, the lions, the oxen, uh, the cherubim. Um, so, you, yeah, you just you see this imagery replete through the earthly temple and the heavenly temple. Maybe that suffices it. Obviously, images of power. Lions, powerful. Oxen, powerful. Cherubim, powerful. Um, the, two, the two pillars, images and names of power. All right, uh, right in the middle of verse 29, on the frames, both above and below, the lions and oxen, uh, there were wreaths of beveled work. Moreover, each stand had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze. At the four corners were supports for a basin. The supports were cast with wreaths at the side of each. Its opening was within a crown that projected upward one cubit. Its opening was round 
as a pedestal is made a cubit and a half deep. At its opening there were carvings, and its panels were square, not round. Wouldn't it have been nice if we just sketched a little picture in the margins for us? Yeah. The axles, now this is interesting. This is interesting. Verse 32. And the four wheels were underneath the panels. The axles of the wheels were of one piece with the stands, and the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The wheels were made like a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. I think this is the most important and the most clarifying part of this section. So, suffice it to say, these mechanisms had a practical benefit of somehow getting the water in a usable form for the sacrifices. But if you go back to Ezekiel, for example, these are perfectly fitting of the description of the wheels of the chariot of God. And you, if you remember that description from Ezekiel, they're, they're, they bear, the cherubim, how, how did it go? You've got the wheels that are covered in eyes. And, and so you've got this heavenly reality we're describing that Ezekiel saw. And you've got these four chariot wheels that are all... <laughs> just like this, indescribable in terms of actually trying to figure out the physics or how they actually worked because they go without turning and this kind of thing. But angelic beings covered in eyes, the wheels, the body of the chariot being the four living creatures, and upon their backs being this glassy sea, and upon that the throne of the Son of Man and who's, who's depicted in, in fiery demeanor, flames and whatnot in Ezekiel's vision. So then if we take it back down to earth, even though, even though this has a practical kind of value to it and a use to it, uh, it is nonetheless representative of that reality that Ezekiel sees. Hopefully that made sense. So I think, I think as, far as, as far as like what is our take-home point from this section, it's precisely that these wheels were made like a chariot wheel. And later on, you know, Ezekiel sees this, sees this very thing. I hadn't thought along those lines before. I'm always, I'm always interested, I'm, I'm interested in, this, in this dynamic, that if you go to Isaiah 6 and you look at the vision he has and you think about what he was visually seeing, like concretely on earth, it's as if it morphs into the vision of what it represents, into the heavenly reality of God seated on the throne between the cherubim. I hadn't thought about that in connection with um, Ezekiel because, of course, Ezekiel is talking about the vision of God leaving the temple. The people had finally so definitively exhausted God's patience and broken the covenant so many times and so thoroughly that God was finally leaving the, the temple that Solomon built, and then and thus it's going to be destroyed by the, by the Babylonians. But what's interesting is if you picture, like if Ezekiel is picturing this, you know, he's facing the temple, what is he seeing? He's seeing these wheels, he's seeing the basin, and he's imagining, you know, even though it's enclosed in the building, he's imagining the throne of God uh, right there. And he sees this vision of God leaving it in his chariot. You know, it's almost as if the entire thing becomes his chariot or, Perhaps even you could say um, the Ark of the Co he leaves the Ark of the Covenant and assumes his throne 
on the glassy sea and you know up it goes and away we'd have to go digging back in into ezekiel to see if we can get any mileage out of that but it is it's always interesting to me in terms of the visionary experience that um, the prophets were given it's very frequently based concretely in what it is that they're seeing with their eyes it just takes on this transcendent heavenly truly real aspect. All right, well, be that as it may. The wheels were made like a chariot. This is verse 33. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. There were four supports at the four corners of each stand. The supports were of one piece with the stands. And on the top of the stand, there was a round band half a cubit high. And on the top of the stand, its stays and its panels were of one piece with it. And on the surfaces of its stays and on its panels, he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees, according to the space of each, with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten stands. All of them were cast alike of the same measure and the same form. Verse 38, and he made ten basins of bronze. Each basin held 40 baths, which is 240 gallons. Each basin measured four cubits, and there was a basin for each of the ten stands. And he set the stands, five on the south side of the house and five on the north side of the house. And he set the sea at the southeast corner of the house. Hiram also made the pots, the shovels, and the basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars the two bowls of the capitals that were on tops of the pillars, and the two lattice works to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates of the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates for each lattice work, to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars, the ten stands and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's complex and interesting and thought-provoking stuff. I'd like to, I'd like to spend time reading into this and digging into this and understanding it all a little better because I'm not sure that even my explanation is really, really grasped precisely what's going on. I'll simply have to commend that into, into your hands until I know better. All right. Verse 45, we continue with what are some of the details. Now the pots, the shovels, and all the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. 
In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, and in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarathon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord. The golden altar, which I was looking to see if they say, yeah, that's the incense altar. So the golden altar, the incense altar that's in the holy place, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the inner sanctuary. I mean, I know there were lampstands in the tabernacle. Otherwise, this is all fitting with the tabernacle. I don't recall if, I think that this is a different number of lampstands. Okay, so five on the north and five on the south before the inner sanctuary. The flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and fire pans of pure gold, and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place and for the doors of the nave of the temple. And that's an interesting point that um, one of you here pointed out last week, that if you go back to that diagram of 541, uh, I was saying that I couldn't exactly what was going on from the diagram or from the description in regard to the doors. Um, and, and here you can see that they're kind of, they're hinged like, um, like some closet doors, right? Uh, or at least I had those growing up in my house. Um, yeah, the, the kind of hinge doors, or sometimes you even see pantries like that. They, they kind of fold out and kind of, uh, yeah, fold in. Accordion. Like an accordion, thank you. That was, that was the word I was looking for, right? Accordion doors. All right, I mean, it's a pretty close replica of the tabernacle. It's certainly much, much, much more glorious and substantial, huge and immovable. The tabernacle needed to be movable, needed to be uh, transportable. All right, verse 51, thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought him the things that David his father had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And that was a very, very common practice was to put the, you know, the treasuries in uh, the temples. Okay, then... Uh, Chapter 8, of course, the ark is going to be brought into the temple, and then this is going to be the, the blessing of the temple, the prayer of dedication, etc. So, chapter 8, verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers, houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, 
to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And maybe, maybe we'll pause there just very briefly to drop down to uh, the study notes on chapter 8. After Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant into the finished temple from the city of David, and all the holy vessels were in place, the rites of dedication began with a hymn of adoration, followed by a blessing and an address, a prayer of dedication, a benediction and admonition, and dedicatory offerings. So isn't it interesting that even in this little liturgy, occasional as it may be, you can kind of see the, the pieces, the puzzle pieces of Christian worship. So, you know, much, just so much of Christian worship is in continuity with the Old Testament worship. So then um, the study note on 8.2 also gives you like the background for the time that's being described. Solomon waited 11 months after the completion of the temple to dedicate it. As an appropriate time for the solemnities, he chose the Feast of Booths, which began on the 15th of Ethanim, the seventh month, also called Tishri. And this reference, unlike some of them in the Lutheran Study Bible, this reference is really to the point. If you, if you go back to page 200 and 201, uh, it's, worth, it's worth just glancing at the table here. And if you're, if you're one to put sticky notes in places... By all means, put a sticky note on the temple drawing and what was it, page 541 that we've been looking at. And it also is beneficial, uh, in fact, I've got to do this myself, it looks like, to put a sticky note here at 200-201 because you have a nice little table that describes the feasts of the Old Testament. I'm sure there are some people out there that have no problem memorizing all of this, but for me, it is not, it is not my gift. And if I'm, not, if I'm not living in these feasts, you know, on a yearly basis, I can hardly keep them all straight. So this is a nice reference here. And um, you can see on page 200, uh, right, at, uh, right at the second to the last, the reference is to 2335, and then it's the 15th day of the seventh month, the first day of the Feast of Booths, a holy day. Okay. And you can see the lay observance there, going on pilgrimage, residing in booths, rejoicing. And then down in the, uh, in the lower chart... You can see booths, tabernacles, in-gathering. And that's done um, in celebration of the, the harvest and commemoration of wanderings. And of course, there's deep connections with booths and tabernacles and the Pentecost text, that, or not Pentecost, the um, Transfiguration Sorry, transfiguration text we had just this past Sunday. I didn't preach on any of it because I've done that before. But it's, it's part and parcel of why, you know. I mean, St. Peter didn't suddenly think, 
hey, let's, uh, let's have a camping trip. I'm going to build tents for you and, and Elijah and Moses. But it has to do rather with, with the theology and the understanding of the, of the booths and the tabernacles and that to which it points. You can see it's the harvest, and the harvest is, I mean, both naturally and in biblical theology, it's the ingathering, it's the end. It's the end of the crop, it's the ingathering, it's the disposal of the bad, it's the keeping of the good. It's judgment written into creation, written into the Old Testament. And in all likelihood, um, Peter thought, hey, this is it. This is the fulfillment. This is the judgment. This is the harvest. And uh, we may as well set up our tents um, in celebration of it. I mean, there's other and deeper connections too. But yeah, so I commend this chart to you. It's great. It's great. Look at this. Everything else you want to know. Okay, well, that's all I have on that. So, yes. What, after he finished the temple, then he brought the ark in, or did he build his house? Because that took 13 years. Which, what's the timeline there? Yeah, it's not chronological, is it? Um... Boy, I'm trying to remember if there was if there was any specifics in the text itself. I'm sorry, I just don't recall. Someone someone may find it and let us know. Um, boy, I want to say I want to say that it would make sense for him to have built the temple, and then obviously this all comes in, and then he builds his house after that the point of the author putting it right next to it and kind of messing up the chronology, strictly speaking, um, is, to, is to juxtapose those two, the house of God and the house of Solomon. Let me, um, there may be, a, may be a study note I read to that effect. Yeah, unless anybody else caught that in the text or the study notes, there is a, com- there is a comment somewhere in here on the chronology. Mm. I don't know that I'm going to be able to find it for you, Terry, at least, at least not without being annoying to, to the rest. But yeah, I think there is an answer. I just don't recall it off the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. So yes, he's, um, he's bringing in uh, the ark to the temple. That's takes us back to the text in chapter 8, and it looks like we left off, well, let's just say four-ish, and they brought up the ark of all right, everyone's awake now, I thought that was the archangel blast, our troubles are, are over, alas, just a malfunction, <laughs> Did you all feel that, like, like through your very beings? Okay. I thought maybe it was just because I was wearing the microphone. <laughs> Got a little special jolt there. All right. So verse, uh, anyway, verse 4, I think. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites. Yeah, so the, by the tent, of course, they mean the tabernacle, right? This is the trading of places. 
The priests and the Levites brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him uh, were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. I think that's saying a lot because they count and number almost everything, don't they? And again, what's the theology of that here? The sacrificing of the sheep and oxen are in thanksgiving to God. So this is a monetary sacrifice that doesn't have a direct, concrete, practical... I mean, you know, if you said, I'm going to tithe to the Lord by buying myself a steak. (laughs) I'm going to tithe to the Lord by buying myself and my neighbor a steak. Yeah, I, don't, I think you kind of missed the point of what a tithe is. Um, so, so what is the, the nature of these sacrifices? Are, they're not pragmatic, really, truly speaking, especially in this number. I mean, it's true enough that God allows the priest to eat of the sacrifices, but not at, this, not at this great volume. So what's the point here? The point is just doing something completely impractical as an offering to God, as an offering to God and commending it wholly and entirely into his hands. I think, by the way, this is the best way to look at offerings. It's the way I was taught even when I was a kid. It's like you're offering it to God, even though, yeah, you're in a congregation and it's the congregation's plates and the congregation's going to use it in a certain way. You're, you're offering that to God and you're, you're loosing all your strings of that. And even attitudinally, when you go to make your offering, you're not saying, well, I'm only offering this because I trust them to use it pragmatically. <laughs> the air conditioner has been broken and I trust them to fix this. Um, you know, there's a place for the dedicated gifts to do that for the church, to be sure. But it just is strictly speaking in terms of our attitude towards offering, you're giving it to God, no pragmatism attached. And just in a really, almost like a, a sort of like child-minded way, an innocent and non-calculating way, you just say, commend this to you. So we glimpse that in these, in these offerings of thanksgiving that, you know, so many would see as wasteful or not pragmatic. They're done unto the Lord. Verse 6, Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place, before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. All right, well, very beautiful, very beautiful. And I simply want to point out a couple of things that struck me from the study notes. Um, Again, in reference to verse 8-8, where it's talking about, you know, the poles that are sticking out and that um, they're here to this day. Is an interesting line. So if you look at study note 8.8, the books of kings were composed after the temple had been destroyed. 
This note reflects the time of the source that the writer of First Kings consulted. So you've got a really interesting kind of historical dynamic there going on. Um, if you refer back to where we began in First Kings, uh, it's, it's believed that First Kings is written in 560 B.C., so some 27-ish years after the temple is destroyed. And I think somewhere in here, too, it says that um, we don't know the significance of the poles being so long that they stuck out. Wait, didn't you say the thing of incense was outside? So would the poles open the curtain enough so some incense would go? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I. I'd be skeptical of that, yeah. but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. There's many, many things that we don't know. All right, well, the cloud filling the house of the Lord is obviously the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord. Um, the study note points this out. God showed his presence in a visible way. Also a reference to Exodus 19. It's probably the pillar of cloud there. So the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Uh, it's just interesting. Remember how I think it's John who says, we beheld his glory. Yeah, and um, there's all this language that's taken into the New Testament from this kind of passage, from this kind of reality. But they use it in reference to the incarnation. So that... In what they're saying, without being so blunt about it, is they're saying, just as the dwelling place of God was with man in the temple, now the dwelling place of God is with man in the person of Jesus Christ. And to see Jesus is to behold the glory of God. And to see Jesus is to see what Solomon and these priests saw when they saw the cloud enveloping the temple. To have the fullness of the deity in fleshed in Christ is the same reality. And, and then, of course, these things point us to the ascension and the reality of Holy Communion and the participation of the whole earth, you know, all the Christians of the earth, all the saints of God, um, participating in the temple of God by way of the flesh and blood of Jesus. And uh, all of that then pushing forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, um, verse, ooh, I guess that's all the time. I guess that's all the time. Next week, Solomon blessing the Lord and Solomon's prayer of dedication. The Lord be with you. Amen.